0: Well, good morning again. Glad that you're here, whether you're worshiping with us virtually at home or you're in our uh, courtyard in person. Again, welcome, and it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. To say that we've been living in interesting times in 2020, I think would be an understatement. And uh, there's been many twists and turns, and today is no exception. Uh, Aaron Stevens, who normally fills our pulpit on Sunday mornings, uh, found out that he and his family were potentially exposed to COVID-19. And in just in an abundance of caution, uh, they are going to be quarantining for the required period of time. So we want to be sure to keep the Stevens family uh, in their prayers and in our prayers, uh, you know, for their behalf. Now, in his place today, Brother Andy Cantrell, who you may remember spoke for us about six weeks ago, will be bringing us today's lesson. Andy was raised in Southern California and has many decades of preaching and currently preaches in for a congregation in Minnesota. And we're excited that Andy will be bringing our lesson to us today, which is entitled, Peter, David, and Me. And with that, uh, thank you so much, Andy, for being with us remotely today. And we're excited to hear your message.
1: Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity again to bring a lesson from God's Word. Uh, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 34th Psalm. Psalm 34 is where we'll begin uh, today. You know, everyone who strives to please God, um, they grow through trials. They they wrestle with things that they've done wrong and they go through hard times. Um, Everybody learns lessons and grows through growing pains. That's just the way it is. Um, I want to show you a, a scripture where David was understanding that about himself. He had been through some things in his life that were difficult, he had made some mistakes, and he was learning from that. The title of this sermon is David, Peter, and Me, or David, Peter, And you, and I think it's important for us to see that it doesn't matter what period of history or what time God's people have lived in, everybody goes through the same kinds of things. I hope this will be an encouraging lesson to you, uh, but I want to point something out about Psalm 34 before I read it. You may notice uh, underneath the chapter heading there, it says that this is a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Uh, The word Abimelech is kind of like the word Pharaoh, but it's a word that described Philistine kings. There's a story in 1 Samuel 21, which we will look at in a moment, where David pretended to be crazy. He feigned madness, and because of that, he was delivered from the presence of that king who might have uh, killed him. David was afraid of him. We'll say more about that in a minute. Uh, I will tell you, though, that before we read this, that that description of this psalm has been doubted in history. Some people have challenged that and said, I don't think David wrote this psalm on that occasion. And part of the reason they say that is because this seems to be a psalm where David is praising God for deliverance. But the question of some of these scholars is, how could David praise God for deliverance when he delivered himself in an ungodly and dishonest manner. Uh, What David did in front of Abimelech, uh, actually Achish, the king of Gath was his name, um, was less than noble. It was cowardly. So how could David be praising God for deliverance when the way that he did that was anything but the right thing? Uh, Now, I don't have any problem with this psalm being described as being a part uh, during that time, but I will tell you I have a different take on it. It's not simply a psalm of deliverance, I'm going to suggest to you that it's also a psalm of repentance. It doesn't usually get categorized that way, uh, but I hope I can explain uh, as we go. Now I'm going to read this, and I I want you to do something for me as we read Psalm 34. I want you to try to figure out what was going on in David's heart, what he was feeling before he wrote this psalm or while he wrote this psalm, uh, and then we'll have some things to say about that. Let's go ahead and read God's word together. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned." The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Now, you may notice that there's a number of beautiful things about this psalm. You may even notice there toward the end in verse 20, uh, there's a reference even to Jesus and how His bones weren't broken. Uh, John, the Gospel writer, will reference this text about that. But for all of the good things that this psalm does, I want you to notice what was going on in the heart of David, what he was struggling with. Did you catch it? Look there at verse 4 again. At the end of verse 4, he says that God delivered him from all his fears. David was going through something in his life where he was afraid. Then look there uh, down in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. That that idea of poor is actually the idea of afflicted. It's not just talking about monetarily poor. But he was afflicted in his soul. He was going through difficult things. Uh, Look over at verse 17. In verse 17, uh, at the end of that verse, it says that God delivered him out of all of his troubles Verse 18 talks about him being broken hearted and crushed in spirit. And in verse 19, he had many afflictions. You ever had a time like that in your life? Or did it seem like everything wasn't going your way? And because of that, you had trouble, you had fears, you had a broken heart, you felt crushed in spirit. I know some people right now, because of the pandemic and because of all the things that have gone on this year, have felt some of these things. Uh, David was feeling that, and he was praising God because God had heard his cries and delivered him and helped him. But I still kind of have a question about this text. Uh, What was it exactly that David had gone through when he feigned madness and pretended to be crazy in front of the Abimelech? Let's go back in 1 Samuel 21 and look at the story there. Uh, Try to set a context for this and maybe help us understand what David was going through. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21. Now, I want to point out that Psalm 34 is not the only psalm that was written during this time in David's life. There was also another psalm, Psalm 56. And that one carries a slightly different idea behind it. And I'll, I'll reference that psalm just a couple of times, but that won't be the focus. Now, before we talk about 1 Samuel 21... Uh, I'll I'll remind you that if I was to ask you, when was David struggling in his life with sin the most? Uh, If you think of David's failures in his life, when do you think about? I think most of us remember the story of Bathsheba. When we get into 2 Samuel, after David finally takes the throne, um, there was a a huge mistake that David made in his life. He saw Bathsheba, uh, he went after her, uh, he lie with her, she became pregnant, he ended up cover murdering or having her husband murdered Uriah uh, and then covers it up. Just a terrible time in David's life. But I'm gonna suggest to you that some of David's struggles began earlier in his life, much like for all of us. That there were there were other times that maybe get overlooked where David failed and struggled. Uh, I'd say one of those times is here in 1 Samuel 21. Now the first half of this chapter. David is running from Saul. Saul wants him dead. And he he flees to uh, where the tabernacle is, and he goes to the priests, and he begins to lie to them. He says that he's on a mission from Saul. He's not. Uh, He's actually running. But in the lies that he tells these priests, he asks for help. Uh, And David actually ends up doing something here that Jesus would later comment on. He eats the consecrated bread in the tabernacle, and Jesus would later say that what David did on this occasion was not lawful for him to do. But let me show you a couple of other things that's going on here. Um, Notice here around verse uh, 8 in 1 Samuel 21, And David said to Ahimelech, that's the priest, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind uh, the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Now, you might notice here again, David's lying. He says, I left in an urgent way. The mission was great, but that wasn't so. But he says, is there any um, weapons? I don't have any weapons with me. And the priest says, well, over there in the corner is the, the sword of Goliath. Now, remember that David had used this very sword to cut off the head of the giant that he had defeated. He was so brave just sometime before this. And David says, great, give me the sword, I'll take it. Now here's how we know that David's not in his right mind. Notice the next verse. Verse 10 says, David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath, carrying Goliath's sword. Do you remember where Goliath was from? Yes, he was a Philistine, but the Bible tells us he was actually Goliath of Gath. Now, what's going on in the mind of David where he takes this champion's sword and goes back to his hometown with a very recognizable sword, in fact, and flees to Achish, king of Gath? Something's not right here in David's mind. We'll talk about why in just a few minutes, Um, but let's watch what happens when he gets there. So, in verse 11, it says, "...but the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David the king of the land?" Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Chapter 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. Now notice a few things about this story. Uh, Number one, there's something kind of humorous about this story. Uh, When Achish comes in and sees David drooling down his beard and scribbling on the walls, he looks at the fellows that brought him in and says, why are you bringing crazy people to me? I've got enough crazy people in my kingdom. Get them out of my sight. But I want to suggest to you that there's nothing funny going on in David's mind or heart right now. In fact, in some ways we might look at this story and say, wasn't he clever? What a brilliant strategy to, if he thinks he's going to be recognized, to pretend to be somebody else and like a spy he gets away. Except that I don't think David would have thought himself clever or charming or brave in this moment. In fact, did you notice in verse 12 that it said, David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish the king of Gath. What's happened to David? He was so brave with the the champion of Gath, Goliath, but now he's afraid of this king. What's going on in his life? By the way, I want you to notice in chapter 22, when he finally does escape and goes to the cave of Adullam there in in verses 1 1 and 2 of chapter 22, Uh, it sounds like it takes a while for people to get to David. Word goes out and his family hears about it and they make their way to him and other people begin to gather to David. Uh, Have you ever had a time in your life where you did something uncharacteristic of yourself? You made a huge mistake, you embarrassed yourself or you let yourself down. And in the moment, it seemed like the right thing to do, but when you laid your head down on the pillow that night, you realized, ah, what have I done? I'm going to suggest to you that it might have been in this cave of Adullam when David was thinking about his behavior that he wrote Psalm 34. And that before all of his people got there, uh, he was thinking about the mistake that he had made. And maybe that's when he wrote this psalm of repentance. Let me remind you of the first words of Psalm 34 again. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. Or in other words, I'm never going to do that again. You're never going to find me at a time in my life where I'm not going to bless God or praise God or or say that I belong to God. I'm never going to deny Him again. And I think we'll see as we continue with this uh, study that that David was really sorry for what he had done. Now I want you to notice also that it says um, 400 men came to be with David and he became their captain. Um, This is kind of interesting. I think this is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. This is a a way that David David was a type of his uh, descendant, in fact. Um, David is actually the rightful king of Israel right now. Uh, God has anointed him. But Saul's still on the throne, and nobody is recognizing David as king. Uh, Just like Jesus, when he would come to his own, they wouldn't recognize him as the true king of Israel. And the only people that David could get around him were what I call his 3D army. Do you notice the 3D words? All those in debt, all those distressed, and all those discontented. Someday, Jesus would come. And the only people he could get around him were those in debt and distressed and discontent. So in some ways, David is foreshadowing Jesus. Now, I don't know what I would have done on this occasion. I'm not sure what you would have done. But let's think a little bit about what maybe was going on in David's life that made him so afraid, that made him fail in a way that he had never failed before, before this king. I'm going to take you back to First um, Samuel chapter 16, and I'm going to do kind of a fast-forward history of the, of the life of David up until this point. I think sometimes when we study the Old Testament or Scripture in general, we forget that the things going on in these people's lives these were real events happening uh, sequentially in these people's life. Um, I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be David in the early years. Of his life. And as we think about what what was going on with David and and maybe what precipitated his failure, I want you to think about your own life. A time in your life where things were changing really rapidly. Uh, You were having all these things coming at you that were new, challenging, whether they were exciting or whether they were terrible. Uh, but just a time in your life where you just felt upside down and like everything was coming at you a million miles an hour. Here's my question. How did you do during those years? Did you always serve God the way you should? Were you always courageous? Did you always remember who you were? Now, as you're thinking about your own life, I want you to measure it against David's. See if you've ever been through anything like this. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 16. um, I want you to notice here in verse 12. So so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord uh, said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horns of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, what's happening here in this chapter is, Samuel has come to the house of Jesse to look for the next king of Israel. God had said he was rejecting Saul and he was looking for a king after his own heart. And when Samuel came in, he went through all the sons of Jesse, thinking, well, maybe this is the next king. He looks like a king. And when all of the sons were exhausted and God hadn't chosen any of them, Samuel said, well, is there anybody else? Jesse hadn't even invited David in, David was out with the sheep. Yet, that's the one that God chose. Have you ever had a day like this? David walks into the house. There's an old prophet sitting across the room. And he walks over and pours oil on your head and says, you're the next king of Israel. What a strange moment in David's life. Do you know how old he was? Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that David was 10 years old when this happened. Most people think Josephus exaggerated things. Uh, I think that. Uh, But most scholars agree that David was probably about 15 years old when he was anointed the king of Israel. Imagine what that would do to a young man's mind and how strange that would be. By the way, it's another 15 years before David gets to sit on the throne. From the time he's 15 till the time that he's 30, He actually doesn't get to have the place of honor in the nation of Israel. He's going to spend all those years on the run from Saul. All right, well, if that's not strange enough, uh, let's talk a little bit about what happens next. Look down around verse 17 of chapter 16. It says, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, uh, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat, and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Now, if you remember what's going on here, Saul was being plagued with an evil spirit. He would just go crazy when the spirit would come upon him, and the only thing that could calm him down was music. So he was looking for a a, a minstrel, a musician, who could play music, since music soothes the savage beast. And so David gets hired. He's the anointed king, but he gets hired kind of as a side job to be the minstrel. He's also still working for his father, being a shepherd. And then it says at the end of this that he became the armor bearer for Saul. Have you ever had multiple jobs, kind of stretched thin? Uh, By the way, I have a theory. You know, over there in, in chapter 21, when David was in front of Achish and thought, how can I not look like the king of Israel? He probably thought something like, act like Saul, act like Saul, act like Saul, drooling and scribbling. He'd seen this before, the king of Israel not acting like a king. Again, I want you to imagine, what kind of stresses would that bring in your life? How difficult would that be for you? Let's go to chapter 17. The next thing we read about David's life is his father sends him out to the battlefield where his brothers are fighting against the Philistines. And this is the story, of course, of Goliath. But I want you to think about what David saw when he got out to the battlefield. He looks around, and across the valley are the Philistines and the giant who comes out every day and challenges the children of Israel. And when he looks at the army of Israel, what are they doing? They're cowering, they're shaking, they're not courageous. Can you imagine what that would have been like for David? This is the state of the nation. This is the morale of the troops that you're going to be the king of eventually. you ever seen a young person who was going to take over their father's business? And as they got close to taking over the business, they realized it was in shambles. Morale was low, productivity was low, and they were inheriting this mess. Imagine what kind of stress that would bring. Now, if that's not enough, Uh, David starts asking some questions. Hey, what will be done for the person who kills this Philistine? Skip down there to verse 28. Look at chapter 17, verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, "'Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle.'" And David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? How many of you have had a family member or people close to you who absolutely hated your guts because you were trying to do what was right? You became a Christian and they weren't. And when you would ask questions or bring things up, they would talk to you like this. Hey, you're arrogant. Who do you think you are? Why don't you just go back? Why are you asking these questions? We have some folks like that here in Minnesota that were converted. And their families give them a very hard time. And just that one thing alone can be stress enough in somebody's life. But just add that to the things going on in David's. I'll tell you, the thing that happens next in David's life I think is even more complicated. It probably would have been my downfall. And that is he kills the giant. He goes out with his sling He lets the rock go, the giant comes tumbling down, and overnight, David is a hero, a national treasure. Have you ever seen somebody go from obscurity to fame overnight, that nobody really knew them, but then everybody knew them? I mean, I've seen young Christian uh, boys become great on their football team, the captain. You know, the quarterback. And the attention that they get all of a sudden messes up them, their whole life spiritually because of that attention. In fact, this is a question for you uh, males. How would you have done, look now at chapter uh, 18, if you had gone out to battle, and when you were coming back, look what it says in verse 7 when David's coming back from battle. The women sang as they played and said Saul is slain is thousands, and David is ten thousands. And Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him, and they said they've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? How would you have done if every woman knew who you were, and every time you walked by all of the women when you were young, a teenager or in your early twenties, they all wanted to be near you. Many men would have misused that. Not David. David is still a person of integrity. David is still doing what is right. It's an amazing thing. But now notice the shift with Saul. Saul now is angry with him. No longer any good feelings like back in chapter 16. In fact, look how angry he is. Look at verse 10. Chapter 18, verse 10 says, Now it came about the next day, that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand. As usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. You ever had a day like that? You go to work, and when you get there, your boss takes a spear out and tries to pin you against the wall. I mean, maybe he takes a gun out and shoots at you. And you go back to work another day and he does it again. I don't even understand that. But that's David's life. Do you suppose that like the second time he ducked the spear, he's running out and he's thinking, God, what's going on in my life? When I was anointed king, I thought things were going to be better. This is not going the way that I thought. Now, if that's not weird enough, look at chapter 18, verse 17. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Have you ever had your boss try to kill you and then like just a couple days later say, hey, you want to marry my daughter? That's weird. But Saul had a plan. Now again, if this isn't strange enough and if you can't feel the pressure mounting in David's life, watch what happens uh, on the day of the wedding, verse 19. So it came about at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Does that ever happen to you? You were going to get married, and you walk down the aisle, and when you get to the end of the aisle, the bride marries the best man. I know some people that have gone through a broken engagement, and that turns them upside down for years. They don't know how to serve God after that, because their heart is broken. Just add that to David's struggles. Well, this story gets even more strange because on the day that he's supposed to marry uh, Merab, she's given to another man, but Saul says, hey, my daughter Michael loves you and you seem to like Michael. Why don't you marry her today? Not like a couple weeks from now, but today. The only catch is, um, you've got to bring me 100 Philistine foreskins for a dowry. Folks, I'm glad I didn't live back then. David comes out of the bridegroom chamber and his friends are like, hey, you're marrying and Mirab. And he says, no, I'm marrying and Michael. And they're no, like, no, we got the invitation right here. We know what's going on. And he goes, no, plans have changed, but we've got some work to do. We've got to go get 100 foreskins. And he goes and brings back 200. Now, look at verse 29, chapter 18. Then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus David was... Uh, Saul was David's enemy continually. No more love, all hatred. Things are awful. Now, time out just for a minute. I mean, I mean, just think about the reality of that. That was David's life. Can you imagine how difficult things had been? And now he's finally gotten married to a woman that he loves. If I'm watching this as a movie, I want him and Michael to settle down and have some good years and everything to be peaceful. But of course, if you know the story, that's not what happens. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Now the Bible says that Michael and David loved each other. Can you imagine that night? He lays down on the bed and says, Michael, I've been through a lot. I'm so glad that we get to be together. She says, I love you too. This is so good. And about that time, she looks out the window and Saul's men are surrounding the house. And she says, David, you have to leave. But I don't want to leave. But you have to. Well, when am I going to see you again? I don't know. Maybe never. But you have to save your life. Get out of here. And so he crawls out into the darkness and goes off into the distance. Can you imagine him looking back over his shoulder? Tears streaming down Michael's face. Would you be heartbroken? Uh, but you know what? Everything's okay if you have a best friend. And David had one of those. Do you remember his name? Jonathan. But there's kind of a problem because Jonathan is the son of Saul. Jonathan says, listen, David, I know things aren't going your way, but give me three days and I'm going to find out if my father really wants you dead. Hide out, and three days from now, I'm going to come back to this field, and I'm going to bring a boy, and I'm going to shoot some arrows, and if my father really wants you dead, then I'm going to tell you, you have to leave. I'll shoot arrows and send the lad out to get the arrows, and if I say to the young man, go further, young man, then David, you have to run. But if I say to the young man, come closer, the arrows are closer, then you can come home. So let's sit with David. Here comes Jonathan. He shoots the arrows. The boy goes out. What are you hoping to hear? Come closer. But Jonathan says, go further. Look at chapter 20 and verse 41. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the more. Don't you think? And that's when we get to chapter 21. He's got nothing left. He's got nobody. Nothing makes sense. Life is so upside down. Can't we just let him off the hook in chapter 21? Let him eat the consecrated bread. Let him be somebody different. Let him pretend that he's crazy. I mean, he's done everything right up until this moment. And Have you ever had a time like that in your life where it seemed like everything you'd done for the Lord just wasn't working out, so you finally got to a place where you're like, just forget it. I'm going to be who I want to be right now to make myself comfortable. Go back to Psalm 34. And and think about, just for a moment, what's happening in this psalm. When David starts the psalm and says, I'm never going to do that again, you'll never hear me uh, say those kind of things, denying that I'm anointed, denying that I belong to the Lord. It's not just a psalm of repentance, it's a psalm of teaching. Let me show you what I mean. Go there to verse 11, Psalm 34, verse 11. Listen to David's words. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now, we just saw the story of David. Did David have any children yet? He did not. He had just gotten married. So who's he talking to in verse 11 when he says, come you children, listen to me. I want you to think about those 400 men who were in debt and distressed and discontented. Here he is in the cave of Adullam and he says these words, Who of you wants to love life and see good days? Let me teach you the fear of the Lord. Do you want to know how to have a good life? I imagine every man raised his hand and said, I I want to know. Tell me, David, teach me how to have good days. What's the answer? Verse 13. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Do you know in context, that's not just talking about telling lies in general. In context, that's talking about denying God, lying about who you are, not being the person you were supposed to be in a moment of bravery to stand up for what was right, feigning madness. And David didn't want anybody else to go through that. That'll rob you of life, David says. Now, I told you this sermon was David, Peter, and me. What does Peter have to do with this? Do you recognize verses 10 through uh, 13 from the New Testament? They're actually quoted right in the middle of 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to notice that Peter decided, right in the middle of the letter that he was writing, to quote Psalm 34. It's interesting to me. Why would David or why would Peter identify with what David said here, and why would Peter write it into a letter that he was writing to Christians who were going through hard times? Maybe you're already ahead of me. But did Peter ever feign madness? Did Peter ever decide to pretend to be somebody else in order to deliver himself? Much like David did. Uh, you remember it, don't you? Jesus had said on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was going to go to trial, Peter, tonight you are going to deny me before the rooster crows. And Peter said, no way. But when Jesus said that to Peter, he said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. You ever seen wheat sifted, like being tossed in the air? It was what was happening to David. It was what was happening to Peter. Nothing was making sense. So here, this brave Peter who had taken a sword out in the garden of Gethsemane, cut off the ear of somebody, found himself by a soldier's fire. And a little girl, a slave, said, you're one of them. I recognize you. And he cursed and he swore and he denied that, that he knew the Lord. Maybe he drooled down his beard and scribbled around. You see, Peter knew the same thing David knew. Who was Peter writing to? If you do a quick look through of 1 Peter, 1 Peter was written to people who were exiles. They, didn't, they weren't at home anymore. They were aliens in strange lands. They didn't feel comfortable. They were people who were going through trials like fire, it's described there in chapter 1. In chapter 2, they were people who were living uh, under a difficult government. Look there at chapter 2, verse 13. People like Nero were in power. You know, sometimes Christians, when they go through fiery trials or somebody's a leader in the land that they don't care for and they think their liberties are going to go away, or if you go on, they're in a slavish slavish situation and people are mistreating them, or maybe they're even in a difficult marriage, chapter 3, verse 1, women who are married to men who don't obey the truth. What do you tell people like that? What do you say to people who are in debt and distressed and discontented? Here's what you say. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know what David and Peter both understood? There were some things worse than people harming you. There were some things worse than other people breaking your heart, and it's when you break your own heart, when you let yourself down, and I know you know this because you remember when you did it in your life. You had served God, but then you went away to college and somebody handed you a red cup and you had never drank the stuff in that. But this time, just this time, you wanted to be somebody else. You were in that situation at work and everybody else was making sales because they weren't so honest. And so finally, just this time, you said something deceitful. That boy, that girl was so pretty and you were so in love and so you went too far. And you broke your own heart. And if you could go back to the beginning, and you wanted to love life and see good days, you wouldn't do it again. Look at the question Peter asks after this in verse thirteen. Three thirteen says, "Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good?" Uh, what a good question that is. Let's whisper it to David when he's in front of Achish. David. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? David would have pointed at Achish and said, he could harm me. He could cut off my head. He could destroy my life. But of course, the bigger picture would have been at that moment, David would have appeared before God. And God would have said, well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't allow men to scare you. Peter, what if Peter had said in front of that soldier's fire, I belong to that Lord. I love him. I'm his and they put him up on a cross next to Jesus. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Ah, Christian, you have to ask yourself that question as we go into times that may be perilous or difficult for us. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And the answer is, not a person. The only one that can harm us is ourselves When we break our own hearts, when we ruin our days because we don't claim to belong to God. And of course, the bigger picture is we let God down when we deny Him. David said two things in Psalm 56 that I want to end this lesson with. In the other psalm that he wrote, he talked about the journey that he was on and he said, God, You have seen my path. You've watched my journey and You've collected my tears in a bottle. God knows what we're going through. And David knew it full well. But then he finally said this in Psalm 56:11, listen to these words, "In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me?" Thanks for your attention. I hope this is an encouraging lesson. David went through things that we went through, Peter did, and both of them tried to tell us. If we want to love and see good days, keep your tongue from speaking evil, your lips from speaking deceit, pursue doing the right thing, and live it out in front of everyone. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with me.
2: Well, we just want to thank each and every one of you for joining us for our Sunday morning worship service this morning. And we want to just take a moment to offer an invitation to you. If you've found yourself like David, if you've had hard times if if it just seems like life is is stacked against you, if you find yourself like Peter, where you're just this great person of God, but when the moment comes, you just struggle to proclaim Christ. if you've fallen away, if you're struggling, if you need a hand, if you need Jesus to come down and be a part of your life, we want to invite you to reach out to the staff, to the elders. Uh, You can email us office at mvchurch.org. You can also call us and we just really encourage you to just spend time with God. If you need help, if there's anything that we can do for you, please let us know and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer as we close out today's worship service. Father God, we just thank you so much for today. We thank you for the message uh, that Brother Andy Cantrell brought us. We were thankful that he was able uh, to be with us today. Father, thank you for this church, for this body of believers who just so desperately wants to, to love you and to love others as we're commanded to do in the Bible. Father God, we ask that you be with us as we leave this place. May you bless us, keep us safe, and just allow us to return at the next appointed time that you have for us. Just allow us to seek you more and more each and every day and to live in love like you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' holy, precious name we pray these things. Amen. Have a blessed week. Lord.
3: Your love is shining In the midst of the darkness shining Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us Set us free by the truth you now bring us Shine on me Shine on me Shine, Jesus, shine Fill this land Set our hearts on fire flow river flow flood the nations with grace and mercy send forth your word lord and let there be light lord i come to your awesome presence From the shadows into your radiance By the blood I may enter your brightness Search me, try me, consume all my darkness Shine on me, shine on me Shine, Jesus, shine, fill this land set our hearts on fire flow river flow flood the nations with grace and mercy